Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about why self-control isn't always good for you, why you can't win an argument using facts, and what the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, looks for in its search for aliens with astronomer Seth Shostak. We originally ran these stories on July 8th, 2018, and they're so good, we're playing remastered versions of them to make sure you don't miss them. Plus, stick around for a brand new recap segment at the end of today's episode to hear our fresh takes on all of today's stories. Right now, let's satisfy some curiosity. All right, Ashley, when is it the hardest for you to use self-control? Probably when I'm in a social situation and someone is saying something about ghosts or pseudoscience and I want to be nice, that's when it's very hard to control my self-control. You get upset about ghost believers? I mean, there are different levels, right? (laughs) (laughs) If someone's just having fun with believing in ghosts, I don't care. I also have a hard time keeping my mouth shut sometimes. My mouth gets me into trouble more than anything else, which is funny because I'm a podcaster. But A new publication suggests that self-control is more complicated than just being a positive or negative trait. So maybe it's okay that I don't always use self-control. Yeah. In Current Directions in Psychological Science, a new publication points out that you can have problems when you only focus on self-control. For example, somebody with a lot of self-control might go along with social norms, even if their instincts tell them not to. Or you might stay in an unhappy marriage and strictly control how you appear and behave around your spouse instead of finding ways to work on your problems. Previous studies have actually shown that people with high and medium self-control are actually more likely to binge drink. And we've also written about how wishing that you had more self-control makes you less able to resist temptation. The takeaway from this story is that you shouldn't think of self-control as the ability to resist a temptation when it's right in front of you. The key to healthy self-control is to know when you can't afford to be tempted in the first place. So like you don't buy a 12-pack of Mountain Dew, even if you love it as much as I do, just to prove that you can resist the temptation to drink them. If you know they're your weakness, then don't keep them in the house at all. I mean, yeah, having a whole lot of self-control can actually make you like overwork or overexercise or even watch what you're eating to like an unhealthy degree. Yeah, too much discipline can be a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Too much of anything. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. All right, Ashley, how much time do you spend arguing online? Oh, I'm I'm cutting it down. But boy, I have spent in my day, I've spent a lot of time arguing online. Yeah, I actually joined a Facebook group that is called it's a couple friends political corner. And there's mm-hmm. about 150 people that completely disagree with each other on everything. But the idea is to have civil discussions. I engaged with that for a year or two and then realized it's really not much better than anywhere else. Yeah. Part of the problem is because you can't win an argument using facts. And there's a reason for that. So pay attention, because this is important, especially in today's world. Psychologists call this motivated reasoning. When we want to believe something, we look for evidence that supports it. If we find even a single piece of pseudo-evidence, then we give ourselves permission to believe. That's a justification that lets us allow ourselves to stop thinking, basically. So you see a little article from some random journalist. You've never heard of him. You don't know where these facts came from, but hey, it supports what you're saying. So, all right, I'm going to stop thinking about it and just believe that. And in today's world, it's easier than ever to find evidence that supports anything we want to believe. One of my favorite books is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by psychology professor Jonathan Haidt. And in it, he writes, quote, Now that we all have access to search engines on our cell phones, we can call up a team of supportive scientists for almost any conclusion 24 hours a day. Whatever you want to believe about the causes of global warming or whether a fetus can feel pain, just Google your belief. 
Science is a smorgasbord, and Google will guide you to the study that's right for you, unquote. And ironically, smart people are better at motivated reasoning. When's the last time you actively searched for an article disagreeing with something you believe? But there are ways to overcome your biases and get past motivated reasoning. We got an idea from Dr. Stephen Novella from The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He talked to us last year. Here's what he said about overcoming your biases. Another way to look at this, I'm always the most suspicious of beliefs that I have, conclusions I come to that are in line with my own ideology. So, you know, if I have a particular worldview and this like supports my worldview, I have to be especially suspicious of it because that's when I'm going to be most vulnerable. That's when my motivated reasoning is going to try hard to engage and also just confirmation bias. I'm going to want to just, oh, yeah, that that supports what I believe and want to believe. So, yeah, I'll believe that. It makes sense. I'm not going to question it. But that's exactly when you should question it the most. The big takeaway is that the way to overcome motivated reasoning is to question your own beliefs and to try the Socratic method when you're trying to convince someone else of something. Ask them to explain the disconnects in their beliefs. It won't always work, but it's better than losing another battle of facts. And one thing I always try to remember is that you're never going to convince someone in the moment. It takes planting a little seed that they think about. And then eventually when they change their mind, they're going to think it was them that changed their mind, not you that changed their mind. And that's okay. Always a good idea to make somebody else think it was their idea. Absolutely. That's a great idea that I just had. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited about this segment. We got an email from Saba who asked us, why are scientists looking for life signs like water and oxygen on other planets? Isn't there a chance that there's life that, for example, needs methane to breathe or that only survives in extra hot temperatures or severe radioactive conditions? We went all out for this answer, so we talked to the senior astronomer for the SETI Institute, Seth Shostak. Here's his answer. People like to talk, particularly in science fiction films, about life not as we know it. And yet, whenever we're talking about looking for life, whether it's on Mars or some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn or even on planets around other stars, we always kind of assume that that life will be similar to ours in terms of the biochemistry. In other words, you know, that it, it will be carbon-based life forms and, and maybe it'll use oxygen, maybe it won't breathe oxygen, maybe it'll breathe methane, whatever, but it's some sort of biology that we know about from planet Earth. And why is this? Is this because we just don't have any imagination? No, it's because we have to begin somewhere, right? And we might as well start with something we know rather than something we don't know. I mean, it's possible life could be based on something other than carbon. You could have silicon-based life. They certainly do in science fiction. And uh, the science fiction author, Isaac Asimov, actually, wrote a whole paper. He was a chemist on the other elements that could be used as a basis for life. And there are some others that might work in high temperatures like silicon-based life and so forth. But it's much harder. It's just much harder. It's like saying, you know, maybe the Klingons have built cars, but they don't use wheels on the bottom. They use something else. Well, they might, but but wheels are really a great shape if they're round, right? If they're not round, they don't roll nearly as well. So it's kind of the same with chemistry. Carbon-based chemistry works great. We know what to look for. So maybe we can be forgiven, as it were, for looking for life that's more life as we know it than life as we don't know it. We hope that satisfied your curiosity. Thanks again, Saba. Hey, we're back in 2021, where Ashley and I are no longer in the same room together recording a podcast. So let's do a quick recap of what we learned today. 
Well, we learned that self-control isn't necessarily a good thing. You probably don't want to control the way you look and act in situations where you're uncomfortable and you kind of need to get out of there, right? And remember, the key to self-control isn't necessarily finding ways to resist temptations that are right in front of you. Instead, try to avoid those temptations in the first place. I have this really, really vivid memory of the first time I went to Las Vegas. I was on a business trip and I was working for a small startup. This is not Curiosity, a different one. And the CEO at the time, he and a couple of his buddies, so like one of the older guys was like, let's go to the club. We'll like pick up some girls or whatever and, you know, have the Las Vegas adventures and all the things you hear about what happens in Vegas and all that. And uh, they all go off. I'm walking around the Cosmopolitan Casino in Las Vegas, which was brand new at the time, super fancy. Chandelier Bar has fantastic drinks. And I see my CEO just kind of wandering aimlessly on the first floor. And I walked over and I was like, wait, what are you doing? I thought you were going with the guys to have some adventure or whatever. And he was married and his wife was on the business trip because she also worked at the company. And he just looked at me and he was like, what's the end game? Like, what's going to happen there? And I feel like what he was saying was, why would I put myself in a position where I have the temptation to, you know, be a CEO and have money and be around beautiful women when like I'm very happily married and on this trip and it's just like I don't want to bro out with these other two colleagues of mine. And I don't know why it stuck with me. Like, I guess maybe it was just because it's like a guy that does like you don't need to have those rules, but he just had that maturity and the self-control to just say to himself, you know what, I'm not going to put myself in a weird temptation ridden position there's no real point in doing it so yeah it's sort of like you know that that galaxy brain meme like the low version of self-control the regular brain is like resist temptation galaxy brain is avoid temptation that's the way that you really like master your surroundings is that you just don't put yourself in the position in the first place boom and we learned that part of the reason why you can't win an argument using facts, which is a very hard-won lesson for me, is a thing called motivated reasoning. Basically, when we want to believe something, we just look for evidence that supports it. And finding even a single piece of pseudo-evidence gives us permission to believe that thing. And smart people are actually better at motivated reasoning. And that means you, curious listener. To keep yourself in check, Dr. Stephen Novella recommends being the most skeptical of the things you agree with. Do a quick online search for the opposite of what you believe and see what you find. I mean, being skeptical of the things you already believe is way easier said than done because we don't pay attention as much to the things we believe because it's what we expect. We expect to see that. So it doesn't really like set off any alarm bells for us. So it, it takes a lot of effort to do that. Someone we interviewed on this podcast, cannot remember who, said, if it makes you feel a powerful emotion, double check it, even if that emotion is good. I think that's a good rule of thumb. It's just keep track of your emotions when you're consuming information. And if something makes you feel really angry or really happy, double check it. There you go. And we also learned that SETI looks for carbon-based life because, in the words of Seth Shostak, we have to begin somewhere and we might as well start with something we know rather than something we don't know. Seems like a pretty decent reason to me. This is a really common question. I mean, we've gotten it since. And, you know, we, we haven't answered it again because we've already answered it on the show. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Like, why don't we look for aliens that 
survive on other chemicals and have eight heads and, you know, this and that and the other thing. And like, yeah, we we start with what we know. We know a lot about what makes life here on Earth. So that's our best starting place. We do know a lot about life here, although we still don't know what happened to the ants' wives. There it is. <laughs> Let's go, dude. Today's writers were Ruben Westmus and Cody Goff. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer on today's episode. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. You do not have to exercise a modicum of self-control to join us again tomorrow for a brand new episode of Curiosity Daily to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.